0: Whether it's preparing for hurricane season or getting ready for a severe weather outbreak, you may hear the phrase weather models. All kinds of data go into these models, but a new input could be game-changing for weather modeling as we head into the future. Our next guest is currently an assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where her research focuses on satellite and spaceborne remote sensing, specifically in the area of aerosols, cloud radiative effects, severe weather, air quality, and disaster hazard risk management. Welcome, Myra Oyolo merced Thank you for joining us on Weather Geeks.
1: Thank you for having me here. I'm very excited. Well, I'm
0: excited because even in that intro, there were a lot of geeky terms that hopefully we can get into yeah. Yeah. today, and I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm loving this episode already. I'm going to talk about various things that you do in the area of remote sensing, weather, how some of that information is used in models for satellite data assimilation and so forth. But before we go anywhere near all of that, the first question I ask every guest, how'd you become a weather geek?
1: Oh, I think it was actually through family, to be honest. So I always tell the story about my grandfather, who I sadly didn't meet, Uh, but he was a big weather geek. He was really into astronomy and also weather. Um, so my mom was born in the late 50s, so you can imagine close to the first launch of satellites and the first weather models out there. I do not think he was aware of weather modeling, but from what I hear, He was like telling everyone that in the future, we were going to have spaceborne capabilities to observe the planet. Uh, He was talking about weather models before family and friends knew about it. Um, So everybody thought that he was crazy when he was talking about those things. And so, you know, a couple of decades, (laughs) a lot of (laughs) decades forward, uh, here I am. uh, I think it, it got passed by my mom. Uh, she was always talking to me about science, even though she didn't go to college. I'm actually a first-gen uh, scholar. But she was always talking about, um, you know, you need to excel in your science classes. You need to uh, go deep in the math, learn English, as, as you can uh, probably I'm from Puerto Rico. So I have that very strong Puerto Rican accent still. Uh, but actually coming into or growing up in Puerto Rico, was another factor that helped become, uh, a geek because as everybody probably know, uh, we are not, um, we, we know, or we have our fair share of severe weather. Uh, sometimes it, it's via thunderstorms, but more often than not, we obviously know about hurricanes and tropical cyclones. So, uh, I grew up with that. I grew up, uh, through, um, Georges and um, Hugo. Actually, I was very little when Hugo hit uh, the island, and of course, I was actually a professional uh, already when Maria hit. So all these different experience, different experiences, actually, kind of merging who I am today, uh, and that passion that I have towards meteorology. Yeah,
0: and I, you know. that I- one of the great things about the Weather Geeks podcast that I've been doing over the years is many times we get to have friends and colleagues, and I certainly consider Myra that. We've certainly known each other for some time in various capacities. I first uh, became aware of her through her graduate studies at Howard University. Shout out to all the people at Howard University. Professor, professor, yeah, absolutely. Um but also through her uh, interactions at the American Meteorological Society and formerly at NASA. We'll talk about all of these things, but let me give the listeners and viewers a little bit of your background. Uh, Assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, which by the way is one of the top programs in in the country. Uh, She was formerly at NASA uh, as an atmospheric and ionospheric scientist. And she got her PhD at Howard University as we just talked about. And her bachelor's and master's degree from the University of Puerto Rico, Mayagüez, which I've had the opportunity to visit, still have a really interesting story that I tell, and my may remember, know about this little island that we visited, where there were iguanas everywhere. I don't remember them. Oh yeah, Mayagüez.
1: Yes. Yes. I
0: just remember visiting that with my daughter, who's now in college, but I have a picture of her as a young toddler trying to chase the iguanas on that island. So that's my, that's my Mayagüez story, but. I want to kinda of now dig a little bit into your journey. You mentioned becoming a weather geek, but how did you specifically start getting into sort of more remote sensing, satellites, observations, and ultimately computer modeling?
1: Yes. So actually I am a theoretical physicist by mm-hmm. training. So that's what I studied at the University of Puerto Rico. And um, at some point, I was actually, I was very set on becoming an astronomer and I made a mistake with my enrollment and I ended up having to switch classes and I had to choose a class. And because of the background uh, with hurricanes, with my experience growing up around hurricanes, I decided to actually take a meteorology-based class. And I thought, you know, this is, this is going to be useful. I'm the person in my family that normally tracks hurricanes and who's always paying attention to the weather forecast. And then eventually (laughs) I started taking this class and I fell in love with it. It was like love at first sight. And, you know, it was an intro to meteorology class. And at the time I'm like taking all these other physics classes, like quantum mechanics and and, uh, theory of relativity and all that. So I decided to take another class just to kind of see the math side of it and the actual application so I ended up taking thermodynamics as my second course which is funny enough what I'm one of the classes I'm teaching now so I take thermodynamics, same thing. I actually, it's, it's like falling in love even harder with, with weather. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm not sure yet, but this is awesome. But let me take another class. So I kept taking all of these classes in the meteorology sequence in West, even though I was not part of the sequence. So I ended up graduating with all of these electives in weather. Um, but at the time, again, uh, even though I always knew I wanted to get a PhD, life is not just a straight line. So a couple of things happen along the way. And at that point, getting a job was a priority for me because I wanted to provide for sure. my family. Um, so I actually applied for a job with the Department of Defense. Uh, and while I'm waiting, in the interim to actually get the clearance and get everything that I needed for to start my job, I get selected to go to this field campaign, which is called the Aerosol and Ocean Science Expedition, or Aeros, which is actually a campaign that has been sponsored by Howard University through uh, the NOAA Center of Atmospheric Sciences. I believe it's now NCASM, but it has been uh, going around since 2004. So I get selected and I'm like, I'm excited, of course, I'm going (laughs) traveling, I'm going to Ghana. We started from Ghana. It's the first time that I'm actually joining an international team of scientists. So I, I, I decided to do it. But for me at the time, that was like, well, this is probably the last thing I'm going to do related to atmospheric sciences, because I'm going to focus on my job, which had to do with satellites too, funny enough. Um, So I ended up going to Arrows and uh, in another story, if if I had fallen in love with meteorology, that was it for me. I was like, there's no possible way that I can't do anything else with my life because this is is what I really want to do. Like being at sea, uh, collecting data, just working with new instrumentation, working with the team that we had. For me, that was like the most amazing experience. And throughout the entire time, I kept telling people, Oh, I feel like I'm in a dream. I feel like I'm dreaming. <laughs> True weather detail. Uh, so, yeah, very good. Yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, this is amazing. But it's it's just so difficult to actually verbalize the different things that you see in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. So we are actually departing for the from the coast of Africa. I had this professor from Howard University who was making fun of me from no, the moment oh, I got it. Yeah, so so gonna go there. (laughs) So he's making fun of me because my suitcase is too big, and he's making fun of me because I'm, I'm actually nervous about the fact that I'm working with this team. It's the first time that I have that kind of experience, and actually coming from Puerto Rico is also was it was also my first experience being fully or speaking English every every single day. So it was very shocking, but very exciting at the same time. So at some point, this person, uh, before we depart, he comes to me and he says, I hear you are a physicist. (laughs) What about you start working with this new instrument that we have? And it's a LiDAR. And I'm going to be quite honest. I knew what lasers were. I knew all my my quantum electromagnetic theory, but I didn't know what a light was. But I go ahead. I'm so excited. I'm like, yes, I learned everything about it. Um, So I I start working with this person. And the same thing is the energy that he had and the mentorship and just the, the, the passion that he had towards the field and the measurements that we were collecting, um, so halfway through the cruise, he asks me like, oh, I heard that you had considered going to grad school. And I'm like, well, you know, I applied for a job. And uh, at the time, you know, it was a dream of mine. And he tells me, I think your, your PhD material, you should definitely apply. And I would love to, for me, uh, I can be your advisor. So that was Everett Joseph. Uh, he's now the director of NCAR. Um, and I was also working there with Dr. Vernon Morris and both both of them, have been like a blessing, uh, and, and people that I owe tremendously for my career because they provided so much guidance and a lot of opportunities for me to develop as a scientist. So that moment when I was at sea on the, um, ship Ronald H. Brown, uh, we were there for the first time for, I believe it was like 30 days. I actually have over 200 days at sea <laughs> um, because of, those, of that oh, wow. time during grad school, I kept going back. Um, but that experience connected beautifully with the classroom. So uh, again, my background is in theoretical work, but for the first time I had that entire picture of... Oh, this is this is what we do in the field, and these are all the instruments that we use, which were remote sensing instruments, just a different type of remote sensing, not from space, could which is what I do could right I stop
0: now. you before um, you go? And could you, yes. because like you didn't perhaps know, um, could you tell our listeners what a lidar is?
1: Yeah. So lidar uh, stands for light detection and raging. So it's technically like a radar, but it uses light. Um, and that particular LiDAR, so there's different flavors when it comes to LiDAR. Uh, that particular LiDAR that we were using, is, it was an aerosol or a wind-based LiDAR that uses the Doppler shift of aerosols, uh, to actually make the detection. Um, and we were after aerosol. So the whole campaign, as I mentioned before, stands for aerosol and oceans. So in the Atlantic, the primary aerosol that we were looking after was Saharan dust. So, um, yeah, that, that was the, that first application, the Saharan dust, you can find some of it in the surface, but a, a lot of it's also aloft, and that impacts the thermodynamics and, and the radiative balance of the atmosphere. So we wanted to know where in the atmospheric layer from surface to the top was that aerosol located. So we could then um, talk more about or understand better uh, what those thermodynamics and radiative impacts and implications were. Um, So that actually, uh, that's how I started connecting that um, observation part with remote sensing, but also, you know, with the theory in the classroom. And um, at some point, one of the biggest questions that we had is, okay, we know that these aerosols or these air masses uh, are all over the world. Uh, They are in critical areas. So Saharan dust emerges out of the Sahara Sahel region of Africa. It goes into the Atlantic Ocean. It's predominant in an area where you have a tropical cyclone formation. It has some other implications, too, for the ecosystems and for health impact and visibility in the Atlantic and the Caribbean and also in the East Coast of the United States. So it, it's, it's, it's important to understand what the implications for the thermodynamic and the radiation uh, are. But that that story doesn't stop there. Well, like, hold on, so this, Aaron, let me pause yeah. you. <laughs> I get excited. No, I'm a no, real I, geek. I'm
0: getting. No, no, Myra is awesome. I could say one of the things I've always sort of observed for about her career and about her personally is, I mean, she's kind of like me. We're geeks. We love this stuff, and so yes. I want to take a break, and then I'll let you pick up with the story, and then I want to sort of dive into sort of some of the data assimilation work you do. We'll we'll talk to Myra more and let her finish the story after the first break. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm speaking with my friend and colleague, Dr. Myra Oyola-Mursed, Merced, is at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And, you know, we started that last segment and I was talking to her about how she really got into sort of this world of of remote sensing and data assimilation and instrument observation. And so she was telling a really nice story about how she came to find our, our mutual friend and colleague, Dr. Everett Joseph, yeah. Dr. Vernon Morris, two very close friends of mine in this business and have been for many, many years, and how she became uh, you know, a trained instrument scientist, getting a campaign, field campaign experience, which is a, a valuable part of what we do as scientists. Uh, we have these theories and these instruments but we have we have to go on the elements and test them ver- verify things we're measuring from space and so forth and now she went off to get her phd and working in this role and then moved on from there so f- complete your story and 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 tell us how we got down the path to you now being what i consider one of the top scholars in this area of satellite remote sensing and data assimilation
1: well um After the field campaign, uh, one of the major goals for us was to actually look at how, um, I was talking earlier about the radiative and thermodynamic impacts of aerosols. So you can actually calculate these things if you have the right instrumentation, but at the same time, you do not always get to sample, right? Uh, These field campaigns and the data that you obtain from these field campaigns are very unique. So how then you use these data sets to include in models and see what the impact is in terms of radiation and thermodynamics. And and these impacts can be huge because they can alter precipitation, where where precipitation forms, uh, what is warming, what is not warming. Um, Also, we can see something called heating rates in the atmosphere uh, that is... How, um, well, how temperature, the easiest way to describe it is how temperature changes in a period of time. Um, And so this is very important when it comes to modeling, because, again, it will influence the output of that model, strongly influence the output of that model. So uh, we actually started collaborating with NSEP. Uh, with National Centers of Environmental Prediction at NOAA. And this is fantastic because Howard is in D.C. So we had basically that collaboration there. Um, so I had I actually spent a year at NCAR, learning how to run GFS. And the also American model, on... by the
0: way, if you've heard the term GFS.
1: Yes. Learning how to run uh, GFS. And also at the time, there was a version of uh, an aerosol model which used to be called NGAC, that uh, NSEP was developing. Uh, So the idea, what we had at that point was, okay, we have this model, uh, aerosol model, where we can actually characterize aerosols in the column. So first up, how we can use the observations that we obtain at sea to validate what the model's doing. Is the model correct or wrong? And what are the implications of having a correct or wrong model? So that was the first one. Second is, well, the aerosol doesn't act alone. The aerosol interacts with other parameters in the atmosphere and it influences moisture fields and temperature fields and uh, subsequently how weather systems form. So how can we account for that interaction in the weather models? And finally, which was the piece, the final piece of my dissertation, is, okay, we have satellites, and satellites information is vital, It's the backbone of what we call the backbone of numerical weather prediction or weather modeling. So satellites sometimes do have uh, specific issues sampling the surface, more specifically the sea surface temperatures, which are incredibly important to run models, especially when you have aerosols. So then the question was, Can we, given this information or given this um, uh, information that we have with aerosols with our models, can we use this to kind of correct for the aerosol effect on that sea surface temperature retrieval and then compare to what satellites are observing and account for the error? So that, that was my entire dissertation, which was incredible because it connected to my postdoc beautifully. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, I graduated and then I headed out to Monterey, California, and then I worked uh, at the Naval Research so Lab. And,
0: and I wanted to mention that because in our bio for you, I, I noted that that was missing between the, I thought that you were at Monterey before you went to NASA. You were at NRL, yes. which yes. is the Naval Research Lab uh, in Monterey for those that are listening and aren't familiar. And so how how long were you at NRL before you went to NASA?
1: So I was there for three years, exactly three years. Um, So I was there in beautiful experience, too, because that's where that that was uh, the place where I worked with the data simulation portion. So with models, you can think about them. uh, Most of the people think about the model as being this black box where we get our Navier-Stokes equations, and then we linearize them and we initialize and we run them, which is true. But uh, so this is one component of the actual NWP enterprise. So you get the model, but you also get the data simulation system. And that is critical because as we know, weather forecasting is an initial value problem meaning that you need to have the best initial value possible. And how do we obtain that initial value? It's via observations. So um, normally how a very simple way to explain how data simulation works. So for a data simulation system to be able to run, you need two things basically. So one is a previous version of the model so let's say we, if we are forecasting for 12C, we need to have the version that was run at nine C. So three hours before, uh, if we're talking within the uh, operational meteorology um, timeframes. And then um, you also need the observation. So the observation is that satellite observation, that aircraft observation, whatever suite of observations you have within that three hour span. And with that, you calculate something called the innovation. And what the innovation does is it technically corrects that forecast, that initial forecast that you had uh, at 9C for what was going to be in your 12C. And then you use the satellite or whatever information or whatever data that you have to do that correction. Uh, So that's critical. Now, that's a very simplified version of what a data simulation system is. At NRL, I think they have probably over a hundred people working at NRL, and half of the people working at NRL work on the data simulation wow. problem. It's a huge. Oh, wow! I didn't realize it was quite that large. A, yes, it's a huge problem because you have all these satellite sensors. You know, you get you get so much data that needs to get uh, obviously. Uh, QC or quality control, uh, you need to make sure that, that things are running fast and effectively and efficiently because you only have a, a small amount of time to do this. You need to run all the radiated transfer models uh, in order to assimilate uh, that uh, satellite sensors that that step actually happens within the data simulation step. Uh, and again, it's not just satellites. You have all of these different types of observations, conventional observations from weather stations. You have aircraft observations. You have soundings. So it's it's a huge process with thousands of codes and a lot of people working over it. And obviously, you need to be very careful about how you bring each one of these data sets with their corresponding errors and with their corresponding strengths, right, um, into the system. And then that portion gets connected with the modeling part, and then it gets run and you, you get a forecast. So Let me, so me, let let me kind
0: of sort of jump in. We're talking with Dr. Uh, Myra Oyolo-Merced at the University of Wisconsin. I'm Dr. Shepard University of Georgia. And this is a, a lovely geek out. This is a beautiful geek out, and I love it. So uh, I, I really, uh, I, I knew when we, I, I saw that we were able to have uh, Dr. Merced on, I was like, this is going to be a really good one. Um, I, I want to sort of reset the context before I jump back to our, our guests. So you all may have heard of the European model or the American model, and you've heard her mention the GFS model, and there are these models, and they have different data assimilation schemes in them and so forth, and uh, Dr. Merced is giving us a, a master class in data assimilation. So I just wanted to sort of set the context, because many of you as listeners or viewers probably have heard the European-American model debate, and which one's better, and they're both world-class models, and there are other models as well UK met and so forth they use slightly different data assimilation approaches. I mean, four-dimensional data assimilation. There are different types of data assimilation. So mm-hmm. I want to contextualize that uh, as we continue on now with um, this discussion. So kind of continue on with where you were.
1: Yeah, no, that's an excellent point uh, because it's not only a te- different techniques, different models, but different applications. So the way that a particular observation has depends on the application. So for example, I was working for the Navy and it's obvious that the Navy operates over ocean. So a lot of what it's done by the Navy model, it's focused on having the best possible forecast over ocean because again, that's where uh, the Navy operates. Uh, whereas other models, they will focus particularly in the areas of interest. So GFS obviously over the US, continents of US, um, uh, likewise from the European model, right? Uh, So, yeah, there are very important and notable uh, differences in different systems.
0: Correct. Now, when we come back from the next break, I want to transition to your NASA, what you were up to at NASA, and also want to ask you the big question.
1: The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. Carvana.
0: We're back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with uh, one of the top scholars, period, in the area of data simulation, satellite observations, field observations, observation campaigns, and so forth. Many people in our field know her. I wanted you to know her on Weather Geeks because, as you can see, she knows her stuff she's able to articulate it very clearly. And it's just an amazing guest and someone I've wanted to have on Weather Geeks for a long time. So I'm glad we finally got her. Um, So um, you mentioned uh, sort of your time at NRL, and then you went to NASA. I'm a NASA Mm -hmm. alum as well, Goddard Space Flight Center, and you were at JPL, Jet Propulsion Lab. Just a little quick 101 for the listeners. NASA has several space centers around the nation are various centers and they all do different things. So if you ever encounter someone that works at NASA, don't just assume they work at Kennedy Space Center where they launch things, or even Johnson Space Center where really a lot of the astronaut training and astronaut and bio related things go. Each center does something different. Goddard Space Flight Center where I was was really an earth sciences and space sciences center uh, where many of the satellites for studying earth were developed. Um, Hubble Space Telescope, James Webb. Tell us a little bit, one, about what JPL does and sort of what your role was at JPL.
1: Well, JPL, it's well-known for their missions to other planets. So uh, Mars rover, uh, big mission from JPL, which is an exciting thing when you're a scientist and you're a geek, uh, (laughs) because actually when I got hired at JPL, they were building the Mars rover, the latest Mars rover. So I had the opportunity at lunch all the time just to go to the clean room and watch people work on it. So it's, it's, it was amazing. Um, but what most people do not know, and I'm glad that you brought it up, is that NASA, most of NASA focus is actually on Earth. So a lot of what we do, uh, and even at JPL, has to do with Earth sciences. Um, I was actually in a very interesting role because obviously as with my experience working with satellite data and data simulation, I got brought at JPL to work on satellite retrievals, more specifically with a technique called GNSS RO, where uh, GNSS stands for Global Navigational um, yeah, Satellite Systems. And this is basically GPS. So you can use GPS to predict weather, and most people do not know that. So every time that I tell them, oh, yeah, I use GPS to predict weather, they're like, wait, what? It's like, yes, it is a very uh, innovative satellite technique that was originally used to explore other planets' atmospheres. And at some point, someone decided, well, you know what, if we're using this to uh, understand other planets' atmospheres, uh, we might just use it here because we have all these wonderful positioning satellites. It's called GNSS now rather than GPS because, well, back in the day, there was only one positioning system that was GPS, but now it has evolved into this network of uh, different sa- satellite sensors from different countries. Um, so, with that being said, the second part of my job, which was really, really interesting, was actually as deputy director for an international engagement office that worked with GNSS applications. So not just satellite or radio occultation satellites, but everything from positioning to the ground, scientific applications, uh, geodetic applications, you name it. So that for me was really eye-opening because while we were only five people working at that office, which is called the international GNSS office, Um, That office is actually manned through the uh, NASA Space Geologists uh, Program, and it's also a federation of over 250 organizations. So I had to deal with people from all over the world and that was, and go to the UN and, and talk to stakeholders and professors from other universities. So that for me, coming out of my postdoc was an incredible experience. So I, I could take advantage of my scientific and technical background, but also develop other skill sets that are quite useful now as a professor. So let's
0: fast forward to being a professor because... In our world, and same thing happened with me. I mean, things are going swimmingly at NASA for me and you and whatnot. But opportunities present themselves; things change. And I, you know, for example, when I was in high school, I said I would retire at NASA, but I, now I'm at the University of Georgia Lovett, and love it. And I said uh, that
1: and my yeah. <laughs> same. My dream was to become a, a scientist yeah. at NASA. I actually got laughed. Once in my classroom in high school, because I, they were asking, "What do you want to do?" and I was like, "I want to be a scientist at NASA." And my my friends all laughed at me, and then you know they figured I was like, "Well, we should have laughed exactly. at you. you Absolutely <laughs> did it. But you also <laughs> said
0: something. You also said something very critical earlier in the podcast when you said things are not linear. Um, yes. you know, careers, lives, everything take different pathways, and so now you're at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, yes. as a faculty yes. member tenure track faculty member so yes. tell us a little about a bit about your world now that you've entered my world of academia because a lot of people again think when they hear oh I'm a professor and I'm sure you get this as well the first question out of their mouth is what do you teach and we do teach yes. but we also do research and we do service and outreach and a lot of other things beyond teaching in the classroom so tell us a little bit about your sort of the things you're teaching there and what your current research projects are.
1: So that's amazing. Yes, I had that 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 same. I have that same question sure. all the time. Uh, so you, are you you left NASA. So the, this is the first thing that I got sure. actually. You left sure. NASA to become a teacher, yeah. and I'm like, no, that, no. That's exactly right. So <laughs> so I wanted to stay at NASA forever. And however, um, this is how I see my, my my vision of my field and what I do. Um, there's the instrument, there's the data, and there's the people. Yes. And the instrument, we, we're always looking for that next big instrument and how to best handle our data. And now we hear about all these techniques like machine learning and artificial intelligence and all that. But these doesn't really matter if we're not connecting it to the people. And there are two aspects of the people. The people can be our, uh, our civilians or, or our, our our communities, right? Uh, The people that benefit from the products that we developed at all these different agencies. But part of that group of people includes students. And for me, while I was at NASA, one of the things that became really clear to me was that I really like mentoring students. And the other one, and I'm not to, and I hopefully don't say this to brag, but I don't think, Everyone has the ability to mentor. And even though I was on denial about going to academia and about mentoring students, I figured out at some point that I was actually quite decent. And I I actually cared.
0: I I see how you interact with your students, for sure.
1: So I cared. And uh, so that was part of the reason uh, why I did that jump towards academia. Um, And obviously, uh, so now I'm here. And it's the best job I ever had, and not to say anything bad about NRL and, and oh, NASA. No, 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 I think I understand. I would agree Great with you. Great places to yes. work. But when it comes to my life purpose, I think this aligns very well with what I really want to leave behind. Yes. Um, so it's, it's been fantastic. So I am now teaching the two intro classes for our um, undergrads. So, uh, they, well, the actual core courses. So one is, uh, atmospheric. So they're atmospheric physics, atmospheric physics one and two. So atmospheric physics, physics one focuses on thermodynamics. Again, if we connect back to my original research. And the second portion is radiation, which is technically how electromagnetic energy interacts with the different constituents of the atmosphere. And that class is critical uh, not only for satellite remote sensing because the theory of remote sensing is based on radiation, but also for things like climate and climate change. You really need to understand your radiation if you're going to talk about climate change. Um, so, yes, I, my research group has been growing really fast. I have yeah, four undergrads and two grad students right oh, wow. now. Um, and so what kind of projects work, are you working on? So we're working, my senior grad student is working on uh, actually the radiative impacts of Saharan dust and their influence on African-easterly waves. Uh, I have another student who's particularly working on aerosols and particularly biomass aerosols. Um, and, and normally, when we think about wildfires, we think about how the air quality deteriorates in an area and the impacts immediate impacts on that area. But we don't think enough about what happens when those aerosols advect downwind into other regions. So particularly here in the Midwest, that has become an issue with suppressing or enhancing precipitation and severe weather. So that project involves understanding the impact of uh, California uh, aerosols and Canadian aerosols advection into the Midwest. I have another student who's from the University of Puerto Rico, collaboration with the University of Puerto Rico and actually NCAS, uh, who's working on ozone uh, and how do we best represent ozone in models because as with aerosols, uh, satellite observations of ozons are very difficult, especially in the lower atmosphere. So we're trying to improve that type of observational capability and, and the representation in models. And my last student, my incoming grad student, is working in a very different project, which, if you know me well, I, for some reason I love aircraft and airplanes, and I am really passionate about, about airplanes. So we're actually working on CAT, which is which stands for clear air turbulence and how changes in climate and temperature have increased the amount of cat in different uh, regions uh, around the maybe world. Maybe
0: that's why you've been in contact with my colleague, Dr. John Knox, for example. I know that <laughs> yeah, he has, yeah. I know he's worked <laughs> in that area as well. Uh, last question for you. I, I could just talk to you all day. Just, you're, just. you're I've known you for, for a while, but I mean, just always, this is just so fascinating to actually get a chance to sort of collegially talk to you. Um you work in the space of data simulation, weather modeling, numerical weather prediction, and so forth. If you had a magic one that you could wave for, for Congress or NOAA or whatnot, what, what what's our next great advance from your perspective in really moving the needle forward in terms of weather prediction or data simulation?
1: Yes. Oh no, definitely looking into the next generation of sensors. Uh, and, uh, so for example, things like GeoXO, which is uh, the, the next generation of geos or geostationary satellites, that's extremely important because it's going to give us the uh, resolution needed to understand processes that n- normally we can't see, or we can simulate, uh, using weather models. So smaller scale processes. Uh, but specifically, I think connecting that piece with atmospheric composition, not forgetting that we have clouds, that we have aerosols, that we have ozone, and that we have all of these issues now with wildfires, uh, in that we need these sensors to address those those new challenges and societal needs. Um, And hopefully um, our next generation uh, instruments will have sensors that can help us better understand Uh, those interactions.
0: And and I I lied. I'm sorry. But one more question, because, again, just a fascinating conversation. Uh, You mentioned you were from Puerto Rico. Uh, One of the things that you and I both know, there are not a lot of Puerto Rican or women in this field. Um, What what advice would you give to a young Myra 30 years ago, 20 years ago, in terms of what you know now coming up in this field?
1: I will tell her to wow, that's so many pieces of advice, but I, I would say I will tell her not to be so hard on her, herself. Um, and I've seen this too with a lot of the students with the same background that are coming into the field that they want to be ultra productive and which is amazing, but at the same time, it can be a little bit uh, it can bring a lot of stress. Uh, especially when you're a first generation in your family, first generation scholar in your family, because it, sometimes you fail at something and you think that everybody's watching you. And there's this incredible amount of pressure that goes on you. Uh, so yes, reach out to others and learn from those mistakes. If you make a mistake, it's okay. That's how we learn. Yes. Uh, not everything has to be perfect. Yeah. And yeah, that would definitely tell that because young Myra was great, but she was also very, yeah,
0: well, sure. And, and, you know, I was speaking of John Knox, he posted something on social media about a recent, um, I guess, Nobel Prize winner. And I don't remember her name right now, but he was talking about how she couldn't get any research grants funded. Uh, at, at, during her career, but now she went on to win the Nobel Prize. So we all have failure. We all have challenges in life, and as I always tell my students, uh, it, you just get uncomfortable, uh, get comfortable being uncomfortable sometimes, and being comfortable with failure because it, it, it hardens the scab and allows us to move yes. on. And I, I, I just see you as a real inspiration for not. Just young women, but anyone in this field. So hopefully, people will follow you. Where can people find find your research group or website or social media? Anywhere, anything out there?
1: Oh yes, I'm I'm heavy on social media, especially Instagram. Sure. So in Instagram, I am at uh, Professor Oyola. Um, my website is AtmosphericResearch.org. You can find me through the Department of atmospheric, uh, atmospheric and Oceanic. I, I kept getting reminded about the O, in, the the o S- in there. That's right. <laughs> yes, uh, Department of uh, the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And also I'm on Twitter. Yes to as uh, professor or so you can find me there and i love to connect with people and students so yes please reach out don't be yeah, afraid
0: it's really awesome we have to end it there but before we do i have to recognize our geek of the week Uh, This week's Geek of the Week, and by the way, we like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. And this episode's Geek of the Week is Christian Camroth. Camroth is a resilience program manager who loves tropical cyclones and summer sea breeze thunderstorms. The 2004 hurricane season in central Florida, Florida was his most memorable Weather event. Now, if you know someone that you think is deserving of being our next geek of the week, be sure to follow the Weather Geeks social media pages. We're out there on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and I believe even Threads. Myra, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast.
1: Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. I'm
0: Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and we'll see you next time.